What's up, Hyperfast Nation? On this episode of the show, I sat down with an amazing loan officer and loan officer coach. He shared his personal story of going bankrupt and how he came back from that and built a multiple seven-figure net worth and how he is helping people get into homes, helping loan officers learn how to get people into homes and helping other people learn from him to create wealth. Welcome to the show, Scott Groves. Welcome to the show today, Scott. How are you doing? Good, man. We're all set. We're like recording on our side. I, I'm going to use this new technology. You guys are using Riverside instead of Zoom because I like the auto upload and the, the quality is much better than Zoom. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, we, we switched to Riverside back in January. The quality is definitely better. So yeah, glad uh, we were able to introduce you to that. Why don't you... Uh, Tell our listeners and viewers, you know, I know you through GoBundance, but just give them a little bit of your background and what you do. Yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I've got the same origin story of most loan officers who do residential mortgages. Uh, started in 2000. The day I got out of the army was working at Washington Mutual. Rode that wave all the way up to like 2007, 2008. You know, I think my last year in the army, I made $18,000. So uh, when I was working in the bank making, you know, $100,000, I thought I was rich, right? I was like trying to keep up with the Joneses with all the other Los Angelinos who were making real big boy money and uh, effectively went broke in 2008. Should have declared bankruptcy, just didn't do it because I, I got bad financial advice and I let my pride get in the way basically spent my whole 30s digging out of a million dollars of debt and then it wasn't until about you know six seven years ago when my wife and i my, my wife's amazing super frugal very like traditional humble hispanic family great savers and uh, she really got us on track with our finances and then you know net worth has kind of exploded from there um in that recovery phase post 2008 was doing a lot of loans that led to a coaching program for loan officers. That led to writing a book about lead generation. That's led to some speaking gigs, which has been pretty exciting. And now, um, as we're recording this, August of 2022, uh, we just kind of changed parent companies that we work for on the mortgage side. Uh, my my right-hand lady, Dallas, we went to uh, Synergy One, which is where we're going to be doing our mortgages and hanging our shingle. I'm building out their internal kind of enterprise level coaching program for the entire company and then coach about 140 loan officers. So pretty busy, uh, still trying to be a decent husband and a decent father mm -hmm. and get in some jujitsu lessons every week. But yeah, that's kind of the crazy crash, burn and, and rebuild. Wow. Well, that's an amazing story. Hats off to you for digging out of that, getting to where you are. I think one of the things we should start off with, which is kind of on everyone's mind. It, and we've talked to a lot of investors on the show, a lot of real estate agents about their perspective on this topic. But as I think you might be the one of the first loan officers that we've had uh, since mortgage rates have started their rapid uh, rise up from their historic lows. What, you know, what do you think that has caused the market to do so far? And where do you think it goes from here? Yeah, I mean, it can't be overlooked, right? Uh, you know, we can look at historical data going back to the 20s and 30s, and we've kind of been in, you know, other than a blip in the 70s when we had massive inflation and spike in interest rates, we've pretty much been in like a, depending on who you talk to, 
30-year, 50-year, 70-year. Some people argue we've been in a 200-year bull market of basically uh, interest rates going down, right? So it's been really beneficial for that borrower class, whether that's individuals or corporations or governments. You know, we've been in like a, a, a very prolonged time frame of ever decreasing interest rates. That kind of hit rock bottom in, uh, I'd say probably October of 2021, where you know banks overnight are borrowing money effectively for free. Uh, you know, 10-year U.S. Treasuries are paying just north of one percent, and your average consumer could get a 30-year fixed mortgage at 2.75. So, of course, this is now the the modern recent bookmark in everybody's head of mm. I should be able to take out a mortgage with a rate that has a two in front of it, and I should be able to do SBA loans and business financing, you know, with a rate with a four or five in front of it, and that's just not really a historical, you know, accuracy other than this two-year window during COVID where there was this perfect storm of financial, you know, fiscal monetary policy that pushed interest rates to the lowest they've ever been in recorded history. So from about, call it October, November of 2021 to now August of 2022, rates legitimately doubled. I mean, we locked in people over the last six months who had to take whatever they could take and they got an interest rate with a five in front of it. Um, you know, if you've got challenging credit or you've got some interesting risk-based adjustments, like you're buying multi-unit or commercial or condo or you have bad credit, you know, you might have got a rate with a six in front of it. Um, what we're seeing right now is, you know, the, these rate changes are always an express elevator up and a slow staircase down. So we saw almost overnight, you know, January, February, March of 2022, just this explosive increase in interest mm -hmm. rates. And now we're starting to trickle it down where I'm starting to lock some people in in the high 4% range. Um, people much smarter than me who I pay to follow think we're going to kind of normalize out around that 4.75. You know, we'll probably, we'll bounce around from the high fours to the low fives, which quite frankly is a normalized market for long-term mortgage debt. I mean, if you figure that it's tax deductible, you know, so really if you're paying five, you're kind of really paying three after the tax write-off, that's kind of normal, but it's hard for consumers because in their mind, houses are the most expensive they've ever been, true statement in America. And now the interest rates are significantly higher than their all-time lows. So it's it's really like a, a, a psychological problem with buyers and realtors and kind of just the economy at large. Um, one silver lining, and then maybe I'll have a follow-up question is, you know, when it comes to housing and affordability, people always forget about the third component. So are houses expensive? Yes, they are. We, you know, we're, we're theoretically the most expensive housing has ever been in America. Theoretically, interest rates higher than they were a year ago. Absolutely, yes, that's factual. However, if you turn off the news for a couple hours and you just look at real wage income growth, blue collar workers and white collar workers, mm. their income has exploded over the last decade, right? Look, if you have a minimum wage job and you're unfortunate and you have to work at Chick-fil-A, yeah, minimum wage is still kind of shitty minimum wage jobs. Although I have seen some signs around Vegas and LA where we have houses that like, Chipotle is trying to hire at 20 bucks an hour for burrito rollers, but I digress. Um, <laughs> that third component, that third rail of housing affordability, which is real incomes, um, that's gone That's gone through explosive growth, right? So that money has to be spent somewhere. You know, I was talking to a client of mine 
without giving away too much of her information. Um, she works at a major tech company. She's uh, in their legal department, like kind of writing these contracts for content. And she's like, Scott, she's like, getting out of law school and then kind of thinking where I would be 10 years into my career, I was thinking 250 to 300,000 would be an awesome income. Now I work for tech company ABC. They pay me 675. She's wow. like, you know, I work like a slave. They get their pound of flesh. But, you know, I'm making 675,000 a year and that's kind of my career trajectory. I might as well spend it on a 2 million dollar starter house on the west side of LA. And I'm like, okay, that that kind of explains or encapsulates you know, the graphic designer that used to make 40, now they're making 80. The corporate attorney that used to make 250, now they're making 600. It's all just inflation, but it's that third rail of affordability in housing that I think a lot of people are overlooking when they're predicting a bubble or they're predicting, you know, a market crash or whatnot. So anyway, sorry, I just threw up a bunch of information, but I think it's all relevant. Yeah, no, there's a ton to unpack there. The, the wages is something we haven't had a lot of investors or or agents comment on as a loan officer you probably see more of that you're verifying you know their income tax returns w-2s so that's definitely an interesting perspective i think historically you know you're right like five is a great rate i remember i bought my first home in 2003 i had a va 30-year fixed rate of six and a quarter and everybody involved in that deal told me that was like the best rate they've ever seen in their right. lives. So, right. um, so, you know, we are historically in a, a pretty good place. I think another aspect to consider we can dive into is what's your alternative, right? right. Because it's not like you can go rent for cheaper. Rents are seeing double digit year over year Absolutely. increases. And I, I almost think if, if you're renting a home, you're, you know, there's a lot of things, kind of cliche things realtors say, like, you know, you're paying 100% interest rate, which is true, sort of. Uh, but you're also kind of buying a one-year adjustable rate mortgage, if you think about it. Like, right. you know, you're, every, every year you can go up, at least with the, the, the arms, the adjustable rate mortgage, you have a cap on them, typically, right? There's not really a cap. Right. Unless you're in one of the, the communist states, you know, on the, on the rent, <laughs> like, increase. Right. So... Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't know what kind of follow-up point you want to dive into there, but I'd, I'd be kind of curious to get your perspective. You know, I, I think you bring up a really good point. Everybody, and you know, we do this as individuals. The media definitely does it anytime they want to sell fear porn. And when you were talking, I was just looking up this number, right? Like, what has the Dow Jones Industrial Average done? the last five years and not that the Dow is the end all be all for, you know, evaluating economic health. But, you know, the problem is, especially the media, when they want to tell a negative story, they're like, well, rents are up 22% over the last five years. And if you're a renter, you're getting crushed. Okay. Again, if you're in that kind of lower rung socioeconomically, yeah, I agree. You're getting crushed. But if you're anywhere near or approaching the ownership or the investor class, you can own a home. You are self-employed, so you own your own business. You have a 401k, so you can put, pick, put money in the stock market. You can't just cherry pick, okay, rents are really high. Because, and I haven't looked this up in a while, that's why I want to look it up. The five-year return on the stock market, you know, most normally measured by the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the five-year return on the stock market is 48%. So, you know, if you put in $10,000 into a 401k from 
you know, 2009 after the crash to call it 2017, that money has gone up 48.8% in the last five years. Um, same thing with wages, right? I, I mentioned, you know, kind of uh, uh, flippantly the burrito roller at Chipotle making, you know, $20 an hour to roll burritos. Well, I could look at it, let's say I'm somebody, like I have a 20 year old son, he's just entering the workforce in college and renting apartments. And he's like, dad, it's so crazy, you know, me and my three roommates, you know, we can only get a, a, a an apartment, a two bedroom for 2000 out on Long Island, out in the ghetto. You were telling me how the first place you rented was, you know, $500 a month. And I'm like, yeah, but it's, it's all relative to the overall financial picture, son, because my minimum wage as a bank teller when I got out of the army in 2000 was like, seven and a quarter, 750. I think I handled money. So I got like an extra dollar an hour. I'm like now, you know, a bank teller in most large banks making 23, 24 bucks an hour. So I, I hate when people try to cherry pick the interest rate or the rental income or houses are so expensive because you got to look at it overall right now. Look, if you're working a minimum wage job and you're in a high cost rent area, and you haven't yet gotten to the ownership class of America by either owning a home, owning your own business, owning a piece of the stock market, well then yeah, your life kinda sucks right now and you probably need to make some drastic changes, you know, geographically, educationally, business-wise, you know, buy the $99 Droid phone instead of the $1,200 iPhone. Like, you've gotta make some massive, massive changes to get out of that poverty level. But once you get into what I commonly refer to as the ownership class, you're self-employed, you own your business, you own a home, or you're at least putting some money away in the stock market, like, one of those things is balancing out. Yeah, houses are expensive as shit, but you know, your 401k is also up 120% since the crash in 2008, 200% since the crash in two, 2008. So I, I don't know, I just, I, I guess my only takeaway would be like, anytime you see anything in the media or your realtor's telling you anything or your lender's telling you anything or your father's telling you anything about the first house they bought at $100,000, <laughs> just take a step back and look at the overall fiscal monetary picture and be like, all right, let me evaluate it from there instead of just cherry picking one little thing that can look bad. Hey, hold that thought. Do you wanna get 100 tips for free from my best selling real estate book, The Hyper Local, Hyper Fast Real Estate Agent? If you do, go to hyperfasttips.com and you can download 100 of my best tips today. Again, that's hyperfasttips.com. You can download 100 tips on how to grow your business, get more clients, deliver more value to more people. Go to hyperfasttips.com. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, I think one thing people forget to talk about when they're talking about interest rates is what was inflation at that time. Like when, when the interest rates were, you know, 3% right before the pandemic, the reported inflation, which I don't believe, but the reported inflation was 2%. So you were, you were paying a, a 1% over inflation to borrow money. Well, now the reported inflation is 9%. You can get a loan for 5%. So you're, you're 4% under. So you're, you're effectively, you know, yeah, your nominal rate is higher, but you're, you're paying back dollars that are worth 4% less. Like, Dude, great calculus by you. Um, you know, we have a second home up here in Henderson, Nevada, which is where I'm standing right now as we're talking. And uh, we sold a house down in LA recently. So my wife and I are trying to decide, do we buy a big, you know, pool house, big forever house with a home office? Do we double down here in Vegas or do we buy a place in LA? And th there's a lot of considerations that's going on there. 
But when it comes to the house I'm standing in right now, Henderson, Nevada, you know, four bedroom, three bath, 2,500 square foot track home, the number one consideration for do we sell this, capture a couple hundred grand and put it into the next house, or do we keep this as a rental property? You nailed it. The number one consideration is what's the interest rate we got on the house in comparison to inflation? Because luckily we refinanced this mortgage a year and a half ago in the middle of COVID when we got a rate of like 2.875 on a second home. Now with inflation at eight or 9%, if I just keep this house and rent it out at break even, I'm basically making five or 6% a year because the, the interest rate I'm paying on my borrowed dollars versus inflation, you know, property values going up, rental costs going up, it probably makes sense to keep this house forever versus if I got the house today and I had to finance it at five or 6% cause it's a second home. And then, you know, inflation in the next couple of years trickles back down to where it kind of has been historically. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe I just sell the asset, recapture the cash because like, I'm not really printing money as a hedge against inflation with my mortgage rate versus where the national inflation level is. Mm. But I think we might keep this house forever just because of how low the interest rate is. Yeah. I've, I've run those same calculations on some of my properties, investment properties. And it's like, you know, if my rates under five or four, like it's going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be a pretty tough sell. Maybe, maybe I use a HELOC, you know, to pull out some extra money, you know, but, um, it's, it's, it's a tough sell. I, I think that could negate some of the, you know, downward pressure on demand because there's going to be downward pressure on supply because there's going to be yeah. less people willing to like sell their home if they have one of these rates in the twos, threes, low fours. I, I presume in 10 years when, you know, the government still massively mismanages the supply demand curve on where they're giving the incentives, right? Because like every government, if we go from LA city all the way up to the federal government, every tax policy, every credit, every kickback, it's all designed to juice and goose the, the demand side. Oh, first time buyer credits, you know, we're going to give uh, grants for down payment assist programs. It's like, no, what you really should be doing is you should be goosing the development side of it and giving all kinds of credits and bonuses and tax cuts for people that are building houses, redeveloping mm. houses, you know, uh, turning storage units into apartment buildings and like, you know, condensing populations. Uh, but they don't do that because there's obviously way many buyers that are voting than there are property developers that are voting. But if they keep doing that, right, which I think the government will because I think they screw up most things, I think in a decade or so, you know, there'll be a lot of Wall Street Journal articles and political rants about a, a generation of homeowners that are that are stuck and they're captive to the house they live in mm. because of the interest rate they have. And you know that will be the new boogeyman that they blame for not enough supply and prices going up and too much demand. When in reality, I mean, you're in the development world, you probably know this better than I do. Uh, they could cut some regulation pretty quickly, give some tax breaks, and they could stimulate, uh, stimulate the construction of new housing units. But the government just keeps doubling down at every level from community all the way up to the Fed of like, no, let's incentivize the buy side of the supply demand curve, which is stupid because it just keeps raising prices without giving people proper incentives to build more uh, units and more housing stock. But um, yeah, that's probably a whole different episode. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen a lot now of this blaming the zoning laws and this move for the 
the missing middle. I've, I've seen it here in Arlington, you know, where our business is today. I've, I've seen it in other cities, articles, and this movement to rezone single-family neighborhoods. And I, that one's kind of interesting to me. I think, in reality, you're not going to have a missing middle. Like in Arlington, if, if you could, you know, tear down some single-family homes and build condos, uh, you're going to get five, 600K, like one-bedroom condos there. You're not going right. to get, like, workforce housing. So I, I think that's kind of one of those things they they blame but when you when you look at all of this the you know buyers it's harder for buyers to pull the trigger now because of higher interest rates more sellers staying we've we've definitely seen less transactions you know less volume in the last couple months but we haven't really seen price you know dropping or price decreasing anything noticeably if anything it's right. still continue to creep up just at a slower pace like do you think there's going to be kind of a standoff between buyers and sellers like like buyers just have to get used to a higher rate or wait for rates to come down or sellers kind of have to throw in the towel and you know maybe maybe drop their their prices some like what what do you what do you think is going to happen with this yeah, you know, and I'm stealing this from uh, somebody who we both know in the industry named uh, Barry Habib. He's probably the best I've ever met or listened to at kind of prognosticating about what the market's going to do and what the, you know, buy side of the demand looks like and the supply side of the demand. And I heard him give this talk years ago about Lee Iacocca, right? Um, who's the, the famous CEO of Chrysler, then Ford, then returned to Chrysler. He's probably one of the, I don't know, most lauded CEOs in America history and kind of mythology. And Lee Iacocca, like, really brought Chrysler back from the brink, just so they could go bankrupt 30 years later, but brought them back <laughs> from the brink uh, with the invention of the minivan. And, and he did that by just looking at geographic trends. He was like, hey, you know, the, the baby boomers are now of this age. They're going to start having all the kids in the 70s and 80s. There's going to be this explosion of suburban transportation back and forth. We got to create something bigger than a sedan. And that was kind of the birth of the minivan, late mm. 70s, early 80s. And so Barry compares this to the housing market right now where all other things aside, you know, what, what does the government do? What does the economy do? What does zoning do? If we just look at uh, household formation, the millennials, the Gen Zs, the de Gen Xers, the Gen Ys, you know, the last four generations of people uh, our age and younger, they're waiting until later in life to make those major life decisions, buy a house, have kids, get married, you know, basically the things that grow the household, getting married, having kids, three dogs, I want a backyard. You know, he's talking about, you know, over the next couple of years, somewhere between five and 15 million young families coming into their own where you now have dual income and we want a house to raise our kids, you know, to live in a cooler side of town, to have a backyard for our dogs because we're sick of living, you know, downtown LA condo style with homeless people shitting on our front step. Um, so, you know, he's just looking at demographics and he's like, demographics don't lie. There's just gonna be this, this ongoing pressure for housing that, you know, can we have, you know, momentary disruptions? Could, you know, what we're seeing right now, China may be trying to go to war by taking over Taiwan and kind of mess up kind of global economy again and supply chain. Things can happen. But if we're just looking at the overall demographic trend, there is a lot of people who need housing and there's simply not enough units being built. Um, and then we're seeing this other trend where like 
baby boomers and empty nesters, they're not doing what everybody thought they would do, which is downsize from the five bedroom house in the, in the suburbs into a one or two bedroom house that they can kind of live out the rest of their life through retirement and into their golden years. So it's like you have this one demographic mm. that's keeping the larger housing stock locked up because they're like, well, maybe the grandkids will come back and visit. I don't want to downsize from my five-bedroom house. But then you have this whole other generational push of people that are coming into the housing market. So on a grand scale, I think you're, I think standoff is kind of the right term where you're going to have this old-school standoff between people that don't want to sell, people that need to buy. It's going to continue upward pressure on um, rate or on demand, which is going to create more upward pressure on, uh, on values. And I just... I don't see it the same way that I was kind of my spidey sense was going off in 2005, 2006, where it's like, oh, uh, this feels a little weird. I just had a client buy three investment properties in Arizona and he can barely balance his checkbook. How is he going to manage three <laughs> rental properties from afar? I just, I don't get the same feeling now that I had where my spidey sense was kind of going off in 05, 06, 07. I just think we're going to see prolonged upward pressure on prices and demand. And I, I don't think that's going away. Hold that thought for a second. Are you a new real estate agent looking to jumpstart your career? Or perhaps you are an experienced agent looking to build and scale and get to the next level. If you are, I've got great news for you. After building and scaling multiple real estate businesses, I am now taking my real estate team to all 50 states. In fact, it's going to be international. I'm going to offer cutting edge technology, training in lead generation, team building, investing, and additional opportunities to build revenue streams. If you are interested and want to learn more about this opportunity, send me a text message directly to my cell phone, 703-638-4393. Again, text me at 703-638-4393. Yeah, I agree on the differences there. There's You don't see those creative loans anymore. You don't see... You certainly don't see a loan get through that, you know, you're like the lender underwriters don't take out the microscope and verify income and assets, right? There's credit scores are up 50, 50 points on average on the buyers now back compared to back then. So I, I, I do think it's a completely different analogy. A lot of people like to make that comparison and the, the best reason that they typically have is, well, prices went up then and they went up now, right? It's like, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of a thin argument. <laughs> yeah, it's it's real thin and it's standing out there pretty pretty far on the plank cuz I think, you know, people like us that have a little bit of gray hair, we think 2007, 2008 was just a couple years ago, but the reality is we're coming up on 15 years since the Dodd-Frank Act, which basically leveled the playing field in the mortgage industry and created what's called a qualified mortgage, meaning if you want a traditional mortgage on a residential piece of property, you have to prove that you can afford it, right? So we've got, yeah, a whole generation now, 15 years of homeowners that have real skin in the game, real down payments, real underwriting, real verification of income. And I think I read somewhere that like the average homeowner has something like 40% equity in their house. So obviously that takes into account all the people that own their house free and clear. But you know, unlike 2007, 2008, where people were doing 100% loans, 110% loans, strip all the cash out of it immediately with a HELOC. Well, now you've got a buffer where your average homeowner, they're not gonna walk away from a house that has 30, 40% equity. 
just because we take a 10% hit to the market if we do have that type of uh, you know dip in the market. Whereas 2007, you took a 10% hit to the market on a million dollar property where you put zero money down. Of course, I'm gonna walk away from it. That's a free 100 grand that I don't have to pay back, You know, a free 100 grand that I don't have to pay back. So yeah, I think that argument of like, well, prices are way up and prices went way up in times in the past and we must be in a bubble. It's like, no, you're not really looking at the under, underlying fundamentals. Now, I got some bigger concerns about the country as a whole and that kind of gets into my libertarian um tendencies but if you're mm. just looking at the housing market the way that the markets have operated the last 15 years um i feel pretty good about it and i'm kind of a contrarian and a negative nelly by nature so i don't think i'm just wearing rose-colored glasses because i work in the industry i just i think there's just different market fundamentals this time around yeah the the other stat that i sometimes like to point to is that right now Less than 1% of people have negative equity in their home. It's, it's like, it's almost statistically doesn't exist. And back then it was 25%. So even if the market took a 10% dive, I, you know, there's, that's only potentially 10% of people or less with negative equity. Like they're probably not going to go through like the seven year ban on buying a home and all of that over, over right. like that amount. Right. It's not, it's not enough. And, and by the way, if they get kicked out, they're probably gonna have to pay more to, to go rent somewhere. So absolutely, you know, I, I, and it's going to be harder to rent somewhere with a foreclosure and, or, you know, short sale. So I, I, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I think the, 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 in the grand scheme of things, uh, the social cohesion of all of this is could what could, could what, you know, brings it, down but i think that's like a decade or or longer and and i think it would be if 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 it gets so expensive cost of living um right then then like the non-ownership class that you kind of talked about like can can you know society kind of stay together and cohesively function you know if if the government continues with we'll call it like boneheaded policies that yeah you know, continue to benefit the ownership class, quite frankly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And like, if we leave the social problems aside, um, you know, I was having a conversation with a gentleman that I know, and, and I love the guy to death. He's a good human being. Um, but let's just say he's, he's failing in Los Angeles. Uh, he's just not making it financially. There's a whole lot of reasons that go behind it. And I was like, hey, man, I can get you this job out in Phoenix at one of our local processing centers. You know, first of all, Phoenix is about half the cost as it is to live in like downtown L.A. If you have to rent a place, you know, gas, everything is cheaper. Like I can get you this job tomorrow. And it's not, you know, it's not swinging for the fences, but it's, you know, $65,000, a year where you can kind of solidify your finances. You're going to work your ass off, but it's like it's way cheaper. And for reasons that I don't really feel comfortable talking about, he, you know, declined the offer. And so I think we've lost a little bit, like, do I want to help people in society that need help? Absolutely. But I think moving from the lower rung of society to that ownership class where you're getting your finances in order, I think we've lost a little bit of that, like, go West young man and make your fortune. Like this guy wasn't even willing to move from LA to Phoenix, which is a four and a half hour drive and not a huge lifestyle change, especially when you're broke, it's not a huge lifestyle change uh, and just wasn't willing to do it. And so I do worry a little bit like, do we have some societal problems? Absolutely. 
Do we have some uh, affordability problems, especially for people that are on that lower rung of the socioeconomic ladder? Absolutely. Do I think there's some social safety nets that absolutely do a great job and serve their purpose? 100%. But do I also think as a culture, we've lost a little bit of this like, hey man, it's not working out in LA, go to Phoenix. You know, go West young man, like follow the railroad tracks and make your fortune. I think we've also lost out on some of that. So it'll be interesting to see if we can pull ourselves kind of out of this social tailspin and redistribute wealth through uh, motivation and, you know, redefining societal norms. I don't mean the government repossessing wealth and then redistributing it. I I hope we can do that as a society because I'm with you. Like we, we could be facing like some big problems 10 years down the line if we don't find a way to to solve that problem. So again, just kind of out on a, on a tangent there, but it's kind of what's, what's top of mind and in focus for me right now. Yeah, no, that's definitely something to, I guess, consider probably not much we can do about it. Unfortunately, uh, switching gears slightly as a loan officer, as a coach for loan officers, what would your advice be to loan officers and real estate agents, you know, dealing with buyers right now that are hung up on the fact that they missed out on 3% interest rates? Yeah, I I think two things. I think uh, showing people um, where the cost of renting is, and there's tons of software and programs and things out there that you can use, but really showing people what the cost of rent is. Like, hey, you're paying $2,700 a month right now for rent to live in major metropolitan areas. Yes, a house is going to cost you $3,600 a month. And that's a big change to your budget, your finances, maybe even your geographical living situation. But let me just show you, if you lock in a 30-year fixed at $3,600, where some of it's going towards principal, some of it's going towards a tax savings versus $2,700 a month in rent that goes up 4% every year and you can't control that. Let me show you where this crosses over and five, six, 10 years from now, you're gonna be several hundred thousand dollars to the positive by being an owner versus a renter. Even when you factor in that you know, extra thousand dollars a month that goes towards ownership. So do whatever you have to do. Get a roommate, you know, just, just do, whatever you, do whatever you have to do. Cut your budget, you know, trade in the BMW for a Honda Civic, like, you know, downgrade from the iPhone to a Droid, stop eating out, you know, whatever you gotta do to get into that ownership class, That's, I think, the first thing that I would be talking to buyers about. Um, And then I've got a loan officer. He's up in Boise, Idaho, who I coach. And talk about adding value, man. This guy's average client for the last 15 years, because he's a lifelong Boisean, I think that's what they call themselves, Idahoian. Um, You know, his his normal client was in that three to four hundred thousand dollar range. Well, you can't buy a house in Boise, Idaho right now for under six or 700,000. So what he's done is he's kind of started to become this career counselor and been like, hey, Bill, um, you know, I see that we got your pre-qualification. You know, you, you're, you only qualify for 400,000. You know, with your skill set, like, do you want me to send you some articles on polishing up your resume and kind of getting out there? Because the job market mm-hmm. is really hot right now. So I know a loan officer who's helped three or four people polish up their resume, get new jobs to increase their earning potential so they can buy a house in their own neighborhood. And this is kind of some creative, you know, consulting, coaching. This is the stuff that loan officers need to be doing right now versus like the last three years when rates were so low, it was just taking applications. You know, it's kind of akin to the guy that sits at the front uh, desk of 24 hour fitness. People walk in and they're like, I need to sign up for the gym. And he signs them up. 
That's been a loan officer the last three years. What a loan officer really needs to be thinking about in this analogy is like becoming a, a personal trainer and a dietitian. Like I gotta help you get your shit in order so that you can really thrive. And so building those relationships, education through math, and then thinking outside of the box on how you can help clients, I think is, is really what loan officers should be doing right now and realtors should be doing right now to help their buyers kind of like get to the promised land of home ownership. Yeah, I like that. You can't be an order taker anymore. You gotta, you gotta be a value creator. What, um, yeah, we, we've got, we actually gotta wrap up in a, a second here. But before we do, I always like to end with a hyper fast round if you're ready for, Go for it. Some, some rapid fire Q&A here. What's your biggest piece of advice to a new loan officer? Uh, biggest piece of advice to anybody who's in the commission field is be relentless about mm -hmm. databasing. We're entering a society where the size of your database is gonna be just as important as the quality of your work. So everybody you meet, name, phone number, and email should go into a database. What's something you're doing in your business today that you were not doing a year ago? Something that we're doing today is getting back out into the community and visiting people at open houses. So there, there's no substitute for good relationships. I could proposition you for your mortgage business all day long, Dan, but until I get out and I see you in your working environment, take you out to coffee, break bread, we're not gonna build a relationship. So just getting back to those in-person basics, I think especially coming out of COVID where we were all on Zoom for two years, people are hungry for it. What's a mistake that you see experienced, we'll call it commission-based people, realtors, loan officers, uh, but a mistake you see experienced ones making? The, the, the mistake I see experienced people making is not cutting wasteful spending fast enough. You know, there's a, there's a strong job market out there. You have a B minus player, fire them and get an A plus player. You know, you're spending $300 on some legacy piece of software that doesn't have a strong return on investment, cut it, get rid of it. I see people not making the shift fast enough to make sure that they uh, maintain profitability. All right. What, um, what is something that challenged you early on in your career or maybe even lately uh, that you had to overcome or that you learned a big lesson from? Yeah, I mean, something that challenged me other than going broke like every other person in the mortgage and finance space in 2008 is just getting fat. You know, you spend, you spend 10, 11 hours a day at your desk, happy hours, eating out, on the go, like keeping health under control as you're building your financial empire. It's way harder than most people think. So, um, you know, just now at 43, trying to spend more time focusing on my health, getting to jujitsu, having a green shake, maybe drink a cocktail instead of seven of them every time we have a happy hour. <laughs> um, that's, that's definitely something that I've struggled with and, and working on overcoming in my 40s. Well, I, I saw this post recently that said, when you're under 40, wealth is the flex. When you're over 40, health is the flex, which is totally. kind of interesting. <laughs> uh, last one, where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Uh, 10 years from now, I want to be coaching full-time. I, I want to hand off the mortgage business 100% in the next couple of years to Dallas and Ann, my two rock stars that work with me. And I want to be, um, I want to be coaching at an enterprise level full time and spending, you know, months at a time in Mexico with my family, enjoying the beach and enjoying my wife's home country. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show. Before we sign off, if people want to connect with you on social media or listen to the podcast or, or just learn more about you, what should they do? 
It's Scott L. Groves. And depending on how you, you know, thought about this episode, it's either Scott L. for loser or L. for lover <laughs> or liked him or whatever. Scott L. Groves, social media, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, just look up Scott L. Groves and you'll find me. All right. Well, thank you for being on the show today, Scott. To all of our listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in. Please share this episode with other people that you know would benefit from it. We'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure and go to hyperfastagent.com to learn about upcoming in-person and online events. And don't forget to share this show with someone that you think could benefit from hearing it and make sure you subscribe on YouTube or anywhere that you can find podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Hyperfast Show. Subscribe to us if you want to make sure you get the latest and greatest Hyperfast shows. And remember, we love reviews. Reviews help us bring better and better guests and improve our shows. So give us the good, the bad, and the ugly. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Hey guys, thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you enjoyed that video, and if you want to see more, click right here. And if you want 100 real estate tips from my best-selling book, click right here to download them instantly. And if you're new to this channel, click below to subscribe.